Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Bloomberg, sound on. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my DNA. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Bloomberg, sound on. With Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. U.S. stocks tumble on economy as Dow falls the most in 2019. Mohammed Alarian checks in to guide us through what many are saying could be the start of another recession. We'll get the latest on the wild ride on the markets. And Matt Whitaker is here. He is going to also have. He is also going to tell us about what life has been like following his time as the former acting attorney general inside of the Trump White House. We dive into all of that, plus his take on Jeffrey Epstein. We'll bring you the latest. I'm joined in studio by Matthew Whitaker. He is general counsel now at PCmatic, and he, of course, is the former acting attorney general. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate the time. I want to start with China because the markets have been on a wild roller coaster Today, the U.S. stock suffering one of the deepest sell-offs of the year and Treasury surging as mounting signs of a global economic slowdown stoked fears for a potential recession. I'm reading my colleagues reporting on the Bloomberg terminal. You've negotiated with China when you were a member of the Trump administration. What do you say to folks who are wondering, when is this going to get back on track? Yeah, I was over in China a year ago in August. I went to Beijing and met with um very high-ranking um, Ministry of Justice and other um, law enforcement uh, departments and their and their deputies, and you know we were tr- we were really working hard on the fentanyl trade and and trying to get them to an agreement where they would schedule fentanyl and make it a crime to produce fentanyl in China and re- and then they're thereby reducing the amount of importation and into the United States. And we'll I, I don't want to interrupt you, but just for yeah. folks who aren't familiar with fentanyl, this is a, a massive piece. Opioid, yeah. This is a massive piece to solving the addiction crisis in the United States, no? It is, and it's also what's causing the overdose deaths uh, of opioids because people get a hold fentanyl-laced in some other drug, and it's it's so powerful that it uh, oftentimes leads to death if uh, in the wrong amount. So I remember this because President Trump was thrilled about this. My colleague, my friend, Jen Jacobs, she had reported on this, saying that this was a massive sign of of U.S.-China tensions potentially de-escalating. Then the other week, we get this news that the Chinese are going back on their word. And now, of course, we're in this heightened environment of uh, the administration labeling China currency manipulator tariffs, we're getting the word this week that half of the $300 billion worth of tariffs will actually be implemented December 15th. So there's been all of these mixed signals, all of these mixed messages. Mm-hmm. From your vantage point, again, how do we get the ship back on course? Well, so if you if you talk to the experts on China 
and in my experience as well, uh, the Chinese love talking, uh, but it's hard to get them to change course. Um, they have obviously a relationship with the American economy that has taken advantage of our of our open markets and has, uh, to some extent, used it against us um, in, in a lot of ways. And one of the ways is is in the drug trade with fentanyl. Another way is in you know with sort of the the, the cheap products that they've sent over. Um, and I, I, I think fundamentally the president of the United States is doing the right thing here, uh, by, by bringing more pressure to bear. Uh, it's obviously not without ancillary, um, uh, challenges as we see with these tariffs. Uh, and, but at the same time, I think the president's right that it's the time was now to confront the Chinese and to make sure that we have a, 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 a level playing field, um, into the future. And, and the Chinese are obviously unwilling uh, to meet us there and to and to truly open their markets and to truly um, trade fairly on the world stage. Matt Whitaker's here. He's the former acting U.S. Attorney General uh, in the Trump administration. What have you been up to since you left, by the way? So I, I, I'm, I'm, I've had announced two affiliations, one with uh, Axiom Strategies or Clout Public Affairs uh, as kind of my consulting piece. And then I have a law practice uh, with Graves Garrett Law Firm. And as part of that, I've uh, picked up a client as their outside general counsel, and that's PC Matic you mentioned before. Yeah. It's one of my um, several clients, and I really am excited to be working with them as part of my law practice and helping uh, helping them with their business-related legal issues. And it's, you know, it's, I have several other clients that I'm helping with, with similar types of issues, but, uh, but you know, in PC Matic's case, um, you know, on the cybersecurity front, it's something that, as attorney general, I got a, a daily cybersecurity uh, uh uh, briefing and it was um, it was very enlightening to understand kind of how our systems are under assault by both na- nation states and organized crime. Was it enlightening or was it terrifying? Uh, it was more terrifying than enlightening. Really? But as as a, as a law enforcement official, um, you know you're always looking for information to mm. inform where you can deploy your assets. As uh, you have limited resources of the FBI and then the other law enforcement agencies at DOJ, and where you deploy those is very much informed to you as where the threats are coming from. And so I made sure that I was very well aware of where the threats were coming from and trying to address those um, with the FBI and other assets we had. In law One of the things we've been, we've been talking about on the show the past couple of weeks, I mean, it's just I mean, the, the tragedy of the, of the mass shooting and the massacres. And you mentioned information. And when you get those briefings, having the information about where to deploy the resources and whatnot. And, you know. I think one of the areas as a reporter that has emerged as an issue of consensus between Republicans and Democrats has been on the issue of information sharing, information sharing between companies like Facebook, Amazon, um, Instagram, Twitter and whatnot to share with federal agencies, uh, but also local law enforcement about actors on their social media platforms who might be making threats. And when you share that information, then everyone can work together to potentially um, solve, not solve, but prevent maybe some of these horrific tragedies from happening. Yeah, that public-private partnership is so important. And I think, you know, law enforcement needs to do its role uh, in making sure that can be an honest partner in that relationship. And and private businesses need to be willing to uh, come to both the federal government, or if, if that's where the jurisdiction is, and sort of admit that, you know, this is this is a vulnerability to our system. It was exploited, for example, uh, or this is a person that's on our platform that, that probably needs some attention, and have, the, have that dialogue. And I think we're seeing, we're seeing it more. I think, you know, the social media platforms especially um, are just so new and, 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 and are not 
um, and disruptive to some extent as to how humans interact. That I think that I think law enforcement had to catch up to where these you know where the Twitters and the Facebooks right. and the like were at. And and at the same time, I think we've you know we've had we had some really good relationships uh, and dialogues uh, with some companies as to how we could both work together to not only strengthen the American economy, but keep the, you know, keep American citizens safe. Are we better prepared for 2020 from Russia hackers and Russian interference and, and bad actors, you know, hijacking social media platforms and all of that misinformation uh, campaigns that they've, that they've done? Or can, can, can we head into 2020? I know you were just at the Iowa State Fair. You bumped into like three Democratic I presidential did. candidates. Can we, can we actually feel that we're, we're better prepared? And what do you say to folks and I've interviewed a lot of Democrats who tell me that they don't think we're better prepared. Yeah, I actually, I, I have, without a doubt, I can say unequivocally that we are better prepared for 2020 than we were in 2016. And I think we're going to do more to disrupt uh, any misinformation or disruptive uh, campaigns implemented by foreign actors. Uh, you know, I think, I think in 2016 we learned a lot of lessons. As you know, though, it's an asymmetrical war. I think we did pretty good in 2018, and I, you know, I can't talk about specifics, but I know we. We, we were able to be more proactive in, in our approach to these uh, issues. And in 2020, I think we're going to be we're going to be ready. The question is, what are they going to do in response for that? Because it is a chess game and every move we make, they're going to respond in a different way. And so um, we should fully expect and we're always going to have uh, Russians and the Chinese and North Koreans and others trying to disrupt our democratic system. Uh, and and the the republic that we've established under the Constitution, but at the same time, I think um, law enforcement, especially uh, from where where I sat, is more prepared for 2020 than we ever have been. All right, Matt Wicker, stick around. I want to know what you ate at the Iowa State Fair, but more importantly, I want to get your take on other policy and political issues of the day. Matt Whitaker's here. He's the former acting attorney general. Now he's outside general counsel at PC Matic. You can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes, Bloomberg.com, or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. Wild Day on Wall Street. Muhammad Alarian checks in coming up later on as well. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. Wednesday, folks. Beautiful day. Beautiful day in the neighborhood. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio. I'm here with Matt Whitaker. Remember him? Matt Whitaker. He's the former acting attorney general. Iowa guy. The guy that said, Mr. Chairman, your five minutes are up. <laughs> what was that like? Uh, so that hearing was surreal and, uh, I'll never forget it. And, uh, you know, it was not most of the things that people remember about that day were unintentional for me. They were just in the moment I was experiencing it, but you know, the, fundamentally, um, Democrats were convinced that I was going to interfere with the Mueller investigation and I didn't. Um, and they were also convinced that the president, um, you know, was, was telling me to do, uh, bad and nefarious things, which, you know, he didn't. And so I needed to make sure that I communicated to that. After that, it was mostly, I mean, I'll never forget one of the, you know, I think Congressman Jeffries asked me, um, he said, you know, we're trying to figure out, you know, who are you, where did you come from, and how the heck did you become Attorney General of the United States? And as I tried to attempt to answer that question, he said to me, those weren't, that wasn't a question. Well, <laughs> so I want to go through, because, I mean, this is, uh, listen, I mean, uh, according to the Mueller report, 
they say, and, maybe, and correct me if I'm paraphrasing mm-hmm. in a way that you disagree with, I know you will. Maybe 448 pages. You're gonna that play. that McDonald McGann, Trump says for Trump directs McGann to lie and create a false record, saying Trump never asked him to fire Mueller. Do you think that rises to the level of obstruction of justice? No. I don't think any of those. The, the part part two is very troubling to me. Okay. First of all, I think um, you know, sort of you you lay out one side of the evidence without any sort of defense or otherwise. And then you also have this standard that we can't exonerate the president. We can't convict him either, but we can't exonerate him. And I think I think that really um, was a dangerous precedent. And I think it it, it came out of um, what what Jim Comey did related to Hillary Clinton when he came out and laid out the evidence, but said we're not going to charge. And I think this is just sort of what we get in that environment. I, I wish. The Mueller team had not done that. I think it's ill-advised, and, and, and now it sets a new standard that there are certain people that even though you typically either charge people with the crimes or you decline to prosecute, we now have this third class of people where we get a full readout of all the evidence that was discovered even though we're not going to charge somebody with a crime. And, and I, I think it's incredibly dangerous, and it's, 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 it's bad for the American system of justice. And now there's this DOJ, Department of Justice, IG report and they're investigating the origins of Trump Russia investigation. Are you involved in that? Have they asked you anything, or what can what can you tell us about that? I mean, where do you think even the Trump Russia investigation yeah. actually so, started? So I wasn't at the Department of Justice. Right. Uh, I joined in October of 2017, um, and so I wasn't there when when everything started, and, and then um, I wasn't involved until he became the acting attorney general. So, and by that time, um, how would you say it? The horse was out of the barn. I mean, you know, sort of we were. We were waiting for the report to be produced. Uh, you know, the charges had all been made, and and I think the only person that was charged while I was there was um, uh, was Roger Stone, if I remember right. And so, you That's know, the, right. the the investigation was was over for all intents and purposes. Um, so I, I really don't have a lot of vis- I don't have any visibility as to what the inspector general is looking at, and and certainly I wouldn't have any information for him. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. AOC, House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jerry Nadler, in his district, AOC is calling for an investigation into Jeffrey Epstein. What's been going on with him? I mean, he, he's committed suicide in jail. Yep. I mean, you, in your old job, you had uh, oversight over all the prisons and, and what was going on there. What the heck happened with Jeffrey? What's going on? I don't even know where to begin. What Should there be an investigation? Do you agree with AOC? Uh, I 100% agree that there should be not only an investigation, but it should be fully transparent as to what happened. I love how if you, you don't think, say it. So, you so, see what I did so there. I saw what you did there. <laughs> um, but, you know, th- so th- this this investigation and, and this um, crime is not going to go uh, – it's not over. It's not going to go be swept under the rug. And when I say this crime, I mean these horrific human trafficking right. um, Terrible. Uh, events. And th- so there's co-conspirators that I know General Barr has said that, you know, are not – uh, off the hook, and you know I, you know I think it's going to be very interesting as well. 
they just executed search warrants down in the Virgin Islands at this private compound on a private island. And I think that's going to generate a ton of new evidence. And it may, it may generate, unfortunately, new victims mm-hmm. can be identified. But more importantly, it could identify some additional perpetrators that could be prosecuted. And so I don't think there's any exoneration based on his death um, for anybody that was, that was with him or did things with him. Um, you know, but my heart breaks for these victims that are not going to get full justice because he's not going to be hold, held to account. President Trump retweeted this thing about the Clinton conspiracy. Do you, do you think there's a Clinton conspiracy? Do you th- you know, I've learned long ago not to comment about the president's tweets. No, well, not, well, not about I mean, his tweets necessarily, yeah. but, the, but the Clintons. I mean, listen, there's a lot of speculation about the – there's a lot of questions. I mean, you, you told me that on, on, yeah, on Bloomberg television. Uh, there's a lot of questions here. So, I mean, yeah, and, and there's more questions every day. Right. Um, but, you know, sort of I, I always wait till the facts come out and the evidence. Uh, as an old prosecutor, um, we'll just see where that leads. And I, I don't know what happened. Uh, I don't know who was involved. But and if anybody was involved, we're just going to have to wait and see. And I, I just don't have any evidence one way or another. Best food at the Iowa State Fair? Uh, you have to have a Campbell's corn dog. Um, okay. I got an argument with Pete Hexeth on Fox <laughs> News because he's from Minnesota and he likes Pronto Pups, which are inferior. Uh, so I had a corn Aww. dog. I always love having the tenderloin and the pork on a stick is pork chop on a stick. Matt Whitaker, delicious. come back. You are the former acting attorney general, now general counsel of PC Matic. Appreciate you coming on. Coming up, Muhammad Alarian, Wild Day. On Wall Street, I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. We're joined now. I want to welcome our national Bloomberg radio audience. And joining us on the phone, Mohamed Alarian. He is chief economic advisor at Allianz and, of course, also a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Also a Jets fan, I understand, which is something we can get to in a second. But I want to thank you for joining us. All right, are we headed for another recession? I don't think so, but Kevin, the risk that we may talk ourselves into one is high. Let me explain. What happened to the yield curve today has more to do with what's happening in Europe and the distortions of monetary policy than it does with our economic outlook. Having said that, this type of behavior in the yield curve in the past has signaled a high likelihood of a recession, and there's a worry that I share that we may end up in a situation where people read these alarmist headlines, they get concerned, they stop spending. As they stop spending, companies stop investing, and then we get a major slowdown. So it doesn't necessarily signal a recession, but it increases the risk of a recession. So in terms of how to right the ship, so to speak, Muhammad Alarian, how do we get out of the alarmist headline fodder in order to ease some of the concerns? What are the markets craving? So the markets are craving economic growth or better fundamentals. And that has to come first and foremost from Europe, which has a really high risk of recession. Second, from China, and third, from us. And that requires pro-growth policies. It requires hard work on improving the tax structure, on increasing infrastructure spending. Um, And it doesn't require shortcuts um, like relying more on central banks. This, This requires fundamental policy work in order to generate genuine drivers of economic growth. It is not an engineering problem, Kevin, as much as it is a political one. So meanwhile, all of the, I mean, there's so much we could, we could go on with this. But from my lens here in Washington, D.C., the president earlier this week 
announcing that he's going to split off impacting raising some of the tariffs until mid-December. Do you think that President Trump now has to make an important calculation as as the 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 recession headwinds appear to be maybe not growing, but the warning signs at least are there? So it's a complicated equation because undoubtedly um, he looks at the stock market and the stock market doesn't react well to tariffs. Undoubtedly, he's worried about the economic outlook. And again, the risk of recession is higher. But don't forget, there's a third issue that's as important, if not more important. And that is national security. Yes. The tariffs with China have become much about much more than just economics. They've expanded to cover national security issue. So the White House has got to weigh these different considerations when it decides what to do next. China isn't helping because they haven't made the sort of concessions that people expect given genuine, and I say genuine complaints, not just by the U.S., but also by Europe about intellectual property theft and forced transfers of technology. Mohammed Alarian is joining us on the phone line. He's the chief economic advisor at Allianz. He's also a Bloomberg opinion columnist, part of my must-read. Literally, I'm, I'm constantly hitting refresh to see when your new pieces are published. I, I want to get your take about whether or not you think President Trump actually wa- maybe doesn't want, but actually a deal is in the cards with China on trade, or, or if you're convinced that maybe there won't ever be a deal. So I think the most likely outcome is what I call a ceasefire, um, not a deal. And by a deal, I mean something that lasts for years. Why? Because a deal requires China to accept things that are politically difficult to sell domestically. Um, and it ex- asks it to, expect it to accept this at a time when it is worried about Hong Kong and it's got other concerns. So I don't see China making the, making the needed concessions, neither do I see the U.S. relaxing on its demands. So the best that you can get is a ceasefire for a few weeks, a few months. The, the highly likely, if you get a big change, is that we get an escalation of trade tensions rather than a durable resolution. What do you think of the Fed's going to do? If you're Fed Chair Jay Powell, how are, what, what, are you, what are you thinking about as you sit down for dinner tonight? Um, I'd probably have an upset stomach (laughs) because I'm getting put into a corner, not just I as Jay Powell, the chair of, of the Federal Reserve, but central banks in general, the European Central Bank, um, the Bank of Japan, and, and of course the Fed. Why? The market is screaming, give me more interest rate cuts, give me more interest rate cuts. Political pressure on me is intense for more interest rate cuts. But I now have evidence that interest rate cuts do nothing to durably promote economic growth at this stage. It's like pushing on a string. My credibility with the market is being undermined um, by the fact that the market is seen to be pushing me around. And I may inadvertently contribute to future financial stability. So I find myself in a lose-lose situation. Either I do what the, what the markets are forcing me to do, and it has no beneficial economic 
outcome, but it undermines my credibility. Or alternatively, I don't, and I risk fueling more market instability. Kevin, it's a really tough position to be in. Final question for you. You have been so generous with your time. Appreciate you calling in. Uh, Mohamed Alarian, he is, uh, of course, uh, the chief economic advisor at Allianz. He's a, a Bloomberg opinion columnist as, as well. If you're getting in your car on your way home from work tonight and you're looking at all of the market news and you're worried about a recession and you're worried as a member of the middle class about the prospects of having to live through another recession, what's your message to those people? So my message is, uh, first of all, let's not talk ourselves into one, because that would be a tragedy. Yes. And then second, remember that you need three things to be able to manage um, this very uncertain outlook. In fact, I love the phrase that Ben Bernanke once used, unusually uncertain. It's not just uncertain, it's unusually uncertain. One is you need balanced resilience. You need the ability to have the money, the savings to go through this. Two is you need optionality. You need to be able to change your mind about the outlook as you get more information. And finally, you need agility. Okay, move quickly once you see clarity as to what's coming. And and I think these three attributes are going to be more and more important as we navigate a very uncertain and fluid global environment. Mohamed Alarian, thank you so much. This has been a treat for me. Uh, He, of course, is the chief economic advisor at Allianz and a a Bloomberg opinion columnist. Appreciate you calling in. You can download the Bloomberg Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli, chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg TV, Bloomberg Radio. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television, Bloomberg Radio. Tyler Pager's here. He's about to go play baseball, I think, with Bernie Sanders' staff in Iowa. The field of, Tyler, at the Field of Dreams, he's a Bloomberg National Political Reporter. You're going to go to the Field of Dreams in Iowa. Up. Is your mic on? Try now. Sorry. <laughs> that is true. It feels like a bucket list item to play baseball, not only at the Field of Dreams, but with a presidential candidate. You know, that is that is pretty intense. All right, so you were back in Iowa. I saw you had this great story on the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, you were on the bus with Senator Kamala Harris. How is she going to turn this around? Because she, she soared at the debate uh, at uh, down in Miami. Uh, but then she's kind of, uh, you know, fizzled a little. Yeah, I think that's that's her big challenge is she had that big moment. She saw a rise in the polls and then it kind of disappeared after the second debate where she was put on the defensive by, by Tulsi Gabbard and, and was a subject of the attack. So now she's trying to pitch herself the as attack. More. I love how we call that the Tulsi Gabbard attack. I mean, essentially, they just got in a wonk war over Medicare for all and also the, just her background as a prosecutor. That's what. Cr- Tulsi oh, was and then there. and then the criminal justice. Right. But I actually was more struck by Biden's takedown of her Medicare plan. Yeah. And and that's something that I think that and that follows into what to what I talked to her about is that she's trying to pitch herself as a non-ideological politician. So someone that isn't Biden as a moderate, someone that isn't Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren as a progressive. And she's trying to be the pragmatic one. And her campaign slogan is the 3 a.m. agenda. So the issues that Americans wake up in the middle of the night worried about. And she wants to pitch herself as the one to solve those issues. She's the melatonin candidate. <laughs> 
She's, That's a good one. You know? But but I so what <laughs> I think she's trying to do is say, look, I, I, I have progressive ideas, but I'm a little bit moderate as well, and, and I'm here to solve the issues that you care about, health care, education. But I think what, what some of the criticism she's getting is people are saying, Well, what do you really believe? And and are you just a poll like some of the criticism that that's in the story is are you just a poll tested candidate who's going to say whatever it takes to win or do you have core values and belief like there's no debate whether or not you agree with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren you're not going to debate that they really do believe what they what they're saying is because they've they've thought that and argued for that for so long and Joe Biden has pitched himself as a moderate someone that can work across the aisle with Republicans whereas Kamala Harris is trying to thread that needle all right well you mentioned Senator Elizabeth Warren uh, and, and she just uh, she was in New Hampshire on earlier today. Take a listen to what she had to say about the stakes for the 2020 presidential election. Here's Elizabeth Warren. What happens in 2020 won't just determine the direction of our country for the next four years or the next eight years. This is going to be the direction of our country for generations to come. I was talking about this earlier today with a Democratic strategist type. Uh, uh, just about how the candidates are making various pitches to millennials on an economic standpoint. I'm not, and, and by the way, millennials under the age of, of 36, I mean, home ownership, uh, uh, 401k savings. What are you hearing when you're out there on the trail for how the candidates like Elizabeth Warren are making their pitch on millennial economic issues? Yeah, that's something that, I mean, student debt comes right to mind. That's something Elizabeth Warren said she would cancel for 95% of people. Bernie Sanders have has put that in his platform. So I think that's one key way that they're Not trying. to put you on the spot, but who's the 5% that wouldn't be impacted by Warren's? People, she says, wealthy people that, that don't need. Right. Uh, it depends. Yeah. <laughs> it, it depends on who, um, kind of your financial situation. There's a calculator on her website that you can go to and, and calculate how much uh, how much of your student like debt would the TI, be canceled. What was it? The TI-83 plus? And then like Elizabeth, <laughs> Elizabeth exactly. Warren's she has an interactive calculator for oh any of you gosh. out there that that want to know if your student debt would be canceled. Check that out. Bernie Sanders said he would cancel for a hundred percent. But if you want an economic argument for millennials, Pete Buttigieg is framing his whole campaign around that, saying that he is best at best positioned to address those issues because he has student debt and he's a millennial. Also, I mean, you talk about gun control. That's something that that he talks yeah. about, and they all talk about about the school shooting generation. So you're in Iowa. You're eating a zombie burger. I mean. If I if I'm an Iowan, we just have Matt Whitaker on. He's a, a local Iowa guy, a Republican. But I mean, if I'm an Iowan, and I'm like, oh my gosh, we're like six months. How many months until the until the January caucuses? I mean, and there's like 20 million presidential candidates, and they're all hovering around. When you talk to voters, are they are they bored of this yet? So. I have a very funny story. I was standing at the soapbox at the Iowa State Fair. and uh, For people who don't know what the soapbox is, what is the soapbox? Soapbox is the Des Moines Register, the local newspaper there, sets up this little stage surrounded by hay bales, and all the presidential candidates are invited to come give a 20-minute stump speech. Of For me, it's my worst nightmare because <laughs> I'm like – I have severe allergies, so I'm not. I'm not kidding. Like, so this is literally Kevin and hives. Anytime, anytime there's like politicians with farm animals or, or hay, I'm, I just break out in hives. Go ahead. Um, sorry. So, so, not that anyone cares. So Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is up there and she's speaking, and someone walks by and says, "Who's up there?" And then Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, Gillibrand organizers, right there and says, "It's Senator Gillibrand." And the person goes, "Senator Jill Brown." <laughs> 
and then just kept walking. <laughs> and I think that's just indicative of, of just how many people there are on the field and how even Iowans who are really usually tapped into this process at a very early stage because they take the responsibility of being the first caucus state. Very nation, seriously. V- very, very seriously, that they can't even keep up with all of them. I mean, the same thing, Tim Ryan, I wrote this story. Um, the headline is low polling Democrat seat breakout moments at the Iowa State Fair is with 24, 25 candidates, depending who you count and who you don't. Um, they're all trying for their breakout moments. And, and some of them, I mean, Tim Ryan went up there and he said, in direct quotes, you may not know who I am. I'm Tim Ryan. And in August, is still trying to be introducing yourself to the electorate when there's so many other candidates. I, I think, think it poses some challenges. So on a day like today, where the, the, the markets are just so wild, uh, and, you know, and Tom Keene's asking both of us just about how much volatility there is and, and fears of an economic recession. When you talk to voters out in Iowa and South Carolina and New Hampshire, are they worried about a recession? So I I think so. I mean, that's that's not something that it hasn't surprised. really trickled yeah, out, out of the Bloomberg terminal has, world. Yeah, it's surprisingly not something that comes up immediately. Um, I think Democrats, that's Trump's strongest issue for his reelection is he's running in part on on a strong economy. And if that starts to falter, as, as we saw the market volatility mm-hmm. today, that could handicap his reelection effort. Um, but I think Democrats are also talking about not just about like GDP and traditional economic measures, but you'll hear Elizabeth Warren say things on the campaign trail like the economy is working for a thinner and thinner slice of people. And 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 even though the unemployment rate is low, people are working two or three jobs. So they're talking about structural facets of the economy as well, rather than just kind of the market. And and so Kamala Harris will say, well, the market's working well if you own stocks, but what up if you don't own stocks? Um, so I think there's a lot of different ways that Democrats are trying to address the economy in preparation for a general election against Trump, where that could be his strong issue if, if we don't see uh, a recession. Biden will keep saying, okay, well, he's the only one that could beat Trump. Do voters feel that way? Right now, yes. That is a a lot of voters we're seeing in the polls, Biden, despite the gaffes, despite what people say is he's too old or or, or criticisms of of past comments or his record. He's still leading in the polls and voters seem to feel that they at all costs they want to be Trump. And and if Biden's the best person to do that, that's who they're going to support. Tyler Pager, Bloomberg News, national political reporter, joining us to break down all of these candidates. We've got like less than six. We have like a minute left. Who's on your radar that, or what is on your radar in the 2020 field that no one is talking about? So I think there's two things. One is the uh, people are talking about this, but the August 28th deadline to qualify for the debates. Yes. So if you don't qualify for these debates, and only nine have qualified so far, two, Tom Steyer and Julian Castro, are, are close. They need one more poll at 2%. What happens? Are you dropping out? And that and that turns into the second thing. So who's qualifying and then who's dropping out? I think the field is really unwieldy. Voters are are getting a little anxious about trying to pick who they who they want to support or learn more about. And there's just too many candidates. Marianne Williamson, does she make it? No, she doesn't. Have any you polls. know what? I'm an optimist. I think Marianne Williamson makes it. <laughs> she needs four. She needs three or four polls, and there's only like two weeks left. I don't know if there's enough polls even even to get her to the four that. Does she, she needs. drop out? No, I don't think they drop out because, again, the DNC extended the deadline. And if you don't make September, you can still make October. Marianne Williamson. All right. I'm telling you, she's captivated an entire following. All right. Tyler Pager breaking it down. Bloomberg News national political reporter. We covered it all today. Matt Whitaker, Muhammad Alarian, and Tyler Pager. Download the Sound On podcast on iTunes, Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Business app. That's it for me. Kevin Cirilli, you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.